Well, now that you're seated, um, I want to invite you to, however you're comfortable, put yourself in a posture of prayer. For some people, it looks like this. For other people, they just kind of bow their head and close their eyes. Some people kneel. That's fine, too. We prayed about some requests that came in at our worship night, but I want to give you a chance right now to go to God with what's on your heart. We believe prayer changes things. Last week, we began a message series about spiritual warfare, and one of the weapons we get to fight with is prayer. We get to go to a God who cares, who knows, and who's all-powerful. So with whatever is on your heart right now, whatever's going on in your life, would you join with me and let's take it to God. Father, we're so grateful that here in this place, we get to worship an almighty God, a God who knows all about us, a God who knows the challenges we face, a God who sees the beginning and the end. Nothing surprises you. And we know that you care for us. So right now, Father, we bow our heads, we lift up our hearts, and we bring to you our concerns. You tell us in your word to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. So, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now. Whatever is upon their hearts, if they bring it to you, Holy Spirit, I pray that even now you would begin to minister to them, that your peace would be upon them, your joy would replace worry, and we'd walk in the confidence that we are your sons and your daughters, the sons and daughters of the Most High King. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen and amen. Well, what a great day to be in church. This is the second week of a message series we're calling Shadows, and we're looking at these spiritual realities that a lot of times we don't think a lot about, but they're all around us, all around us. And you saw it this week in the news. You saw a horrific event happen in Pittsburgh that has very physical implications. It's a very physical reality, but behind that physical reality, there are dark spiritual forces at work. You see it sometimes in the way people talk together about their political opinions. And so they have the thing that they talk about. It's a, it's a physical thing. It's an expression of a very tangible thing that happens in government and or in our culture. But often behind the conversation, there are spiritual realities that manifest in conversation and how people talk to each other, how they describe one another and how they treat one another while they talk about some very physical other kinds of things. There's a heart nature or spiritual nature sometimes to those conversations. You see it sometimes in families when uh, kids who are about to become adults begin to make decisions and they have very practical forces that are weighing on their hearts and practical opportunities they have to engage. But behind all of that, there's some value systems built on spiritual realities that inform and impact how they make those decisions. The spiritual world is all around us. And when the Bible talks about the spiritual world, it talks about it in a lot of ways. And because, because this stuff is not as tangible to measure, a lot of things that the Bible uses to describe the spiritual world, we, we call it in literature metaphors. There are, there are comparisons made in the present visible world that we can see about invisible realities. And one of the most recurring metaphors in the Bible is the language of light and dark. The things of God in the spiritual world are light. The things of everything that is not God is spiritual darkness. And so last week we talked about three of those. We talked about the flesh. We talked about the system of this world. And we talked about an enemy that is active in this world, going about seeking whom he might devour. His plans are to kill, steal, and destroy. 
And I was so impressed with this congregation last week as people shared stories and sent emails and talked about spiritual struggles that they are becoming aware of and some that had happened in the past that they reflected on as we talked about it. And this week, I'm going to begin to dive into three recurring shadow realities that I think God would like to bring some light to. Now, just to kind of go along with this metaphor, um, we're approaching the, the holiday season and all over Cincinnati, people are going to put lights on Christmas trees, and they're going to put lights in their windows and lights on the bushes and trees in their yard. And we talk a lot about at Christmas how that the lights that get put up represent the light that is Christ, Christ the light of the world. And that's true. It's a good way to kind of make spiritual sense and bring spiritual value to some of these cultural practices. That, that, that's all well and good. I, I'm thinking a lot about uh, light at the holiday season because our family likes to take photos. Now, we don't have a photographer in our house, but not too long ago, before everybody had self-correcting um, capability on their phone, like you could begin to edit your photos on your phone, not too long ago, we were trying to take some family photos, and we're inside the house, and we're kind of gathered on my parents' steps in their main entryway of their house, very large set of staircases, very wide, and we all kind of sit there, and the light just wasn't right. And so we got a few photos, and you could kind of see it on the little three-inch screen on the back of the camera we were using. So this is like pre-iPhone stuff. And so we're kind of looking at it, and you could just tell the shadows in the room were such that you couldn't make out all the features of the people that we care about. The whole reason we're capturing the photo is because we care about these people. We want to make a memory here. We want to mark this day. And the shadows prevented us from being able to see one another's faces. And so it was daylight out, so we just did a very, you know, natural thing. We just all got up, went outside where the sun was shining bright and stood over in the side of the yard with the house in the background and took some of those photos. And because the light was much better outside, when we took those photos, you could make out the distinct features of each person's face. There was no glaring shadow overwhelming any part of the picture. And we were able to mark that event and we were able to see each other's identity very well. And then we have these photos that were illuminated by the light. Right? You can stretch this metaphor out, right? See what I'm talking about? Let me tell you what we're going to do today. Effectively, we're going to pull away from the shadows. We're going to go outside into the bright sunlight on three big shadows, spiritual realities. If you want to follow along your message notes, you can also grab out your Bible. We're going to look at several passages. Your message notes look like this. You probably got one when you came in. On the one side, there's some stuff about the life of the church, but on the back side, there are the message notes. I want to draw your attention to a couple scriptures, all right? The first scripture we're going to look at is from the Old Testament. It was when God was trying to write his story into the nation of Israel, that there would be this people... That would be a blessing to the world. And so God revealed himself to this people in the most profound ways. He, he stepped out of the shadows of who he was and, and the, the gap between um, the physical world and the spiritual world. And he began to reveal himself in a very bright way to this people in hopes that they would be a blessing to the world. They would catalog their experiences. They'd write down some truth that he gave them. And this thing, we call it the Old Testament, but this thing would become a gift to the world, laying the foundation of who God is and how God relates to the world. And when God started talking about these realities in a very direct way, pulling them out of the shadow and speaking to them with clarity, he gave them some language in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. Here's what your Bible says on your message notes. Do not follow other gods, he tells this people. The gods of the people around you. 
For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. And this becomes a recurring theme in your Old Testament and in the New Testament that God doesn't want people's affection to be split between him and other gods. Other things that would eclipse, place a shadow on the value they have for him. And the language used is that he's a jealous God. It's the language of a relationship. I don't want our primary relationship being eclipsed, being shadowed by some other thing going on in your life, not some other God that you would serve, not some other reality that you would serve. And so in the story he's writing with this Old Testament people that becomes the foundation for all of what God wants the world to know about him, he makes it very clear. It's about him and everything else is a distraction. Everything else is a shadow reality. A couple pages later, not in your message notes, maybe you want to write this down with the pen we gave you. Deuteronomy chapter 11, here's what he says. The same people, he says, be careful or you'll be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Like you got to be careful because everything in life will pull you into the shadows. Everything in life will pull you to the other way. you got to be very, very careful. And if you read the story of the Old Testament, what you discover is, in fact, that's exactly what happened. They were constantly enticed away into the shadows, away from their primary heart connection to the God of the Bible into the gods of this world, into sometimes, as we talked about last week, their own flesh desires, into the pervasive systems of the world that are not God's ways, and sometimes like following false gods that set themselves up as powerful in our lives. And all three of those shadow realities show up over and over and over again, but there's three primary ones, three primary dark shadows that show up consistently. Three primary ones, and there in your message notes at the top, I want to give them to you from their kind of Old Testament biblical time name, because I think that while they were called gods in the Old Testament, they still have shadow realities in our very present world. I'm actually going to suggest to you that some of this stuff that is in literature that's 4,000 years old, that was described as gods in the Bible that were set up in opposition to the one true God of the Bible, the kind of thing that used to turn the hearts of Israel away from the true God, I'm going to suggest to you that 4,000-year-old realities still cast a shadow into our world today. In much the same way that things very far away from us can cast a shadow on our earth, in the, in the way that the way the earth and the moon and the sun revolve around one another, that sometimes the moon can cast a shadow on the earth. Sometimes these very ancient realities are still casting shadows today. And in fact, we're going to dig into one of them today very deeply. And over the next two weeks after this, we're going to tackle the other two. And I want to go ahead and let you know that not next Sunday, but the Sunday after will be a PG-13 sermon for us. We do this a couple times a year, perhaps. I don't think we've done one in a while, where we put up little signs that say, look, everybody's welcome. If you as a parent want to bring in your kids under 13, you're welcome to. We're not going to police the room, but we're going to talk about one of the shadow realities that a lot of parents don't really want their kids exposed to. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that when it comes to the topic we're going to talk about that day, if you have a kid 13, 14, 15 years old, and they're in middle school, that's a, you know, a great place uh, for them to be. But if you have a high schooler, uh, you want them here. Because we're going to talk about a shadow reality that's very ancient, that still casts a big shadow into our world today. 
it's a a sexual kind of shadow that affects people that is not just a physical thing, but it's a deeply spiritual thing. It shows up in our Old Testament, our New Testament. It shows up in our culture. It shows up in our church. It's probably shown up in your family. So we're going to just put some light on it. And to do that, we've got to kind of talk in some stark ways. So that's coming up in not next Sunday, but two weeks, all right? Let's walk through these three big shadow realities for just a second. Let me let you fill in the blanks, all right? The first shadow reality we're going to talk about, the Bible, especially Jesus, referred to it as mammon, M-A-M-M-O-N, mammon. It's the God of possessions. It's actually making a God of your possessions. It's the God of stuff, stuff, more, more, more. Jesus mentioned this stuff. God, when he said, you can't serve both the true God and the God of stuff. You can't serve both God, Jesus says, and mammon or money. You just can't. And so next week, we're going to explore that one pretty deeply. Talk about the fear that drives so much of our preoccupation with stuff and money. And it's not about money that I'm going to try to get you to give to God. It's about being free with the money God gave you. So you don't have to worry about coming and you know, getting hit up for a big thing or anything like that, all right? So you can come and we can just lay it bare. And I'm going to tell you right now, the fact that I went and told you the message, here's what I predict will happen because remember, we live in both a spiritual and a physical world. Some of you, your biggest fight, your biggest fears in your marriage are about money. And you just heard me say it. Some of you are watching online. You just heard me say it. And everything it's going to feel like next week is going to conspire to keep you from being here. As we talk about the very way to get free from the thing that's bringing so much tension into your life. Like weird things can happen. And you'll be able to dismiss them perhaps as coincidence or happenstance. But I want to tell you, Jill and I have regularly in our life experienced that one moment, the moment we begin to try to take a step forward towards God and the light, there seems to be almost always a pushback. So next week we're going to talk about this financial thing that can happen in a person's life. It's often carried by fear. It wants to take you to shadow realities. A lot of us in the room, there's just deception about money in a lot of marriages right now in this room. And God doesn't want that to be the shadow you live in. He wants to break that in you. And so the moment you begin to step forward, expect that because this is a spiritual reality, there really is a battle for your soul. The stakes are really high. There will be some pushback. The next God we're going to talk about in the Old Testament, he was called Baal, B-A-A-L. It's technically Baal, if you want to be technical in the Hebrew, but in the English, we can say Baal. It's fine. Baal is the God of power. This is what we're going to talk about today. The shadow of Baal, 4,000-year-old literature, cast all the way right here in 2018. Let me show you how he used to be depicted. I think I have a couple photos. I'm going to show you how he used to be depicted in uh, in the ancient land of Canaan, and we call it the Bible land. So guys, you have that first picture? Here is what is called a stele, a a, a piece of stone that's been carved. That's a picture of Baal. He's got that funny-looking hat on his head. Um, metal typically. And if you were a prophet of Baal, uh, you'd wear that hat. And he has his hand up in the air. And on the stele, you could see he's actually holding a lightning bolt. Baal is the god of thunder. 
And when he speaks, his voice is thunder. And he has the ability to command forces, minor gods in his pantheon, all right? He has the ability to do that. And you need, if you live in the land of Canaan, Israel, the Bible lands, Egypt, all the way over to Baal, you need Baal's favor because the thunder god can command the rain, which, of course, waters the land that brings the harvest. He's the powerful god. He's the God of power, and he speaks with power. We're going to talk about him today and how he shows up in marriages, how he shows up in families, how he shows up in churches, how he shows up in our culture. He showed up this week in our culture when a spiritually afflicted man walked into a synagogue and declared who had a right to live and who didn't, and assumed the personages of the divine evaluator with great power to, to, to meld out justice in his mind. Just psycho? Is that all that's going on? Well, I'm confident there's some psychological stuff going on. But there's a spiritual reality that over and over and over again has set itself up to take the place of God and to walk in power. And then two weeks from now, we're going to look at the third one. In the biblical name, the name is Asherah. Asherah, the God of pleasure. These three things show up over and over and over again in our Bible. They show up over and over again in the New Testament, the Old Testament. They show up over and over again in our culture. They show up over and over again in life today. In fact, they're, all, they're almost a power uh, trio, if you will. They're almost a power trio of understanding the spiritually dark forces. In much the same way we talked about three things last week, the, the flesh, the world's system, and this active enemy that sets itself up against the agenda of God. In fact, I want to show you for just a moment a couple of places where this stores up. I don't have it on your message notes, but with your pen there on your message notes, you can write down um, just Genesis chapter 3. Some of you will recall this story. This is the place where evil first shows up in our Bible story. Up until this point, it's been a wonderful story of only light, only good. But in Genesis chapter 3, shadows enter our reality. And there's a serpent in the story that shows up and begins to talk with the created humankind. And in the conversation, there's the appeal to take hold of a fruit that the humankind has been told by God definitively and clearly do not touch. Here's what our Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, that the woman saw that the fruit was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Three pieces. Good for food. That's about satisfying pleasure, the physical appetites that desire to be expressed. That's similar to the flesh over here. In and of itself, food is not bad. In and of itself, pleasure is not bad. But the temptation with the flesh is to fulfill very natural urges in ungodly ways. This is what Asherah did. Took this gift of intimacy between one man and one woman as it was attended and said, if a little bit is good, a lot is a whole lot better. And began to get humankind through the natural appetites of the flesh to engage the flesh's desires in very unhealthy ways. And that shadow from way back in the Bible still shows up today, shows up in this room. And it never 
Never, never. Shadows never produce light. They don't. It always brings pain. She saw that it was good for food. Desirable to the eyes. I want that. I want that. That's the language of mammon. I want that. I need that. That needs to be in my column. And desirable for gaining wisdom. That's, I, I want to have, the, the, the temptation was, you'll know like God knows. He's trying to withhold something from you. You'll have God-like knowledge. This is the language of Baal that we're going to talk about today. This is the pattern you see over and over and over again in your Bible, these spiritual realities that have to be dealt with, and they still show up today. Oh, we're too modern to call them by their ancient names, Baal and Asherah and Mammon. But the realities are still very, very present. Now, let me give you another one in case you think I'm just making this up and I'm stretching too far. In your New Testament, again, write down Matthew 4, Matthew chapter 4. This is the story of Jesus being tempted. Three times, there it is again, three, the flesh, the world, the devil, good to the eye, desirable, and uh, making one want power. In Matthew chapter 4, three things show up again. Here's how Jesus is tempted by the devil when he goes into the wilderness just before he begins his earthly ministry. And by the way, there will always be a spiritual struggle before you press forward into what God wants for you. It's just the way it's going to be. We're going to shine light on that right here, right now, in one of the ways it looks in Jesus' own life. Jesus has this face-to-face encounter with his enemy, who is his enemy, even though Jesus is stronger, he's tempted in like fashion to all of us. He goes through all the stuff we went through. And the first temptation is, let this stone become bread. Now we're right back to the body part. Fulfill your natural desires. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days, and I want you to, uh, temptation is, make this stone become bread and satisfy that physical desire you have. This is the language of Asherah, speaking from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Satisfy that body's urge. And then the second temptation is is throw yourself down, and when you do, you know you're going to be lifted up, and all the people will see, and they'll all come to you and see your great power. And this is the language of Baal that shows up right in the middle of the temptation of Jesus. Everybody will see your power and how strong you are. And then he's taken up to a high mountain. Bow down and worship me, the enemy says. And I'll, let, I'll give all of this stuff, everything you can see, I'll give it all to you. I'll give it to you. All this stuff. That's the language of mammon showing up right there in the story of Jesus. But just in case you think I'm really, really stretching here, I want to show you how John the Apostle wrote about this dynamic, this unholy trinity as it shows up that we talked about last week. In your message notes, I believe it is. Nope, I don't have it in your message notes. First John, First John chapter 2. I only have half a page. I don't have time to write it all down for you. I don't have space, all right? First John chapter 2. I think maybe up on the screen possibly they have it for you. Yeah, there we go. Here's what John writes as he's kind of unpacking the teaching of Jesus for the disciples of his day. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the flesh, the lust of his eyes, I want that. 
and the boasting of what he has and does, the power that comes, comes not from the Father, but from this world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. There is a life that comes to you when you engage the spiritual realities, and you say no to these three forces. Today, let's talk about Baal, the master, the controller, the all-powerful one, the God of the pantheon in the Bible, the one that the children of Israel in your Old Testament constantly waffled between serving the one true God and the Baals, gods, who were in an agricultural society very important to them. They needed it to rain, and sometimes it didn't rain, and how do you make it rain when you can't make it rain? How do you express power over the universe in which you live? You clamor for the power, and so you serve Baal. You do all kinds of weird stuff in serving Baal. You're willing to sacrifice your children, if you need to, to Baal and his consorts in order to get him to rain on you because you can't control the rain, but if you can control the one who controls the rain, then you have the power. This is the thinking that goes into your Old Testament. But that's the Old Testament. It shows up in our modern world in different, but at the same time, similar kinds of ways. We end up doing all kinds of things in our modern world in order to have power, to feel strong, to feel secure in a world that isn't always secure, to feel strong in relationships that don't always feel healthy and strong. We do all kinds of things in our power grabbing that happens in our modern world. You see it in the culture outside of you, but you don't even have to look past your own family to see it. You might not even have to look past your own life if you'll open up your eyes just a little bit and see the light. Let me just give you some statistics that speak to the reality of Baal's shadow in our modern world. We end up doing things, for instance, that none of us really even say are our values. Our values are things like we say we love our families, we, we value the people that we're in life with, but then we end up doing things that don't reflect those values at all. Here's some, some examples. The average dad in America today spends less than seven minutes a day with his kids, but if you ask every dad, do you love your kids, do you value your kids, yes. But the average dad spends less than seven minutes of active engagement with his or her sons and daughters in the average day. The average husband and wife spend less than four minutes a day in conversation. And a lot of that conversation is populated with very transactional kinds of things like where do I need to be when and do we have you know, the groceries that we need. It's not even like meaningful talk. But if you ask the average couple, what do you value? They know the right answers. They feel the right answers. I value family. I value my marriage. But when you look at how they're actually spending that time that they're given, the reality is, is that the shadow of Baal is cast over families. And so where is that time eaten up? Where does that time go? The average disciple of Jesus today in the world in the United States spends two minutes of day in prayer. They're so busy, so busy. So busy, doing what? Living life, getting the stuff, walking, gathering what they need. That the very values that they say they hold dear don't find time to be expressed in their calendar. They're so busy. 62% of Americans today say they're either burnt out or on the edge of being burnt out. And it's not like Christians are exempt from this reality. Pastors and church staff all over the country are burnt out. 
Volunteers are burnt out. The idea that they've been expending energy faster than they can replenish. This, by the way, is the quest of Baal. This is how God wants you to see those shadow realities with clarity so that you don't give in to the, the cycle of silliness that Baal wants to entice you into. I love my family, so I want a good job. I want to take care of my families. I want to provide their needs. I want to give them some of what they want. I want to help my kids call and dreams, find their expression. I need to have some money to do that. That's all honorable and good. That's fine with God. In fact, that's honorable. But then there's a silly little thing that happens, a playing with whether or not it's a need or a want. In fact, our want list gets talked about like it's our need list. So that's fine. That doesn't seem unhealthy, does it? Until the pressure of the lack of clarity between our needs and our wants now begins to show up in how a person has to work in order to fulfill wants that they're calling needs. And now there's a certain drivenness to make that happen. That drivenness is the tool of Baal. I'm not talking about healthy drivenness. That's God-honoring. The Bible says if you're called to lead, for instance, to lead with all diligence. Jesus talks about a healthy work ethic. I'm not talking about that. You guys know the difference. I'm talking about the insatiable desire that drives people to the point of exhaustion. And the very things that they say they're working for are being sacrificed on another altar. Dads who are emotionally exhausted, moms who are emotionally strung out, and they're not physically present with their kids. Is that just a physical thing? No, 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 no. That's a spiritual reality. That's a spiritual reality. Baal could get people in the Old Testament to engage themselves with such frenzied activity in an attempt to get Baal to move in their direction. You see this with Elijah on Mount Carmel. There's this big showdown between the God of the Bible and Baal and the prophets of Baal led by Jezebel. Jezebel, by the way, the one who follows Baal, Jezebel. And here they are in this cosmic showdown, and Elijah says, build two altars, put some you know, uh, animals on it, and cover his with water, and the first God to rain down fire. And so Elijah's over in the corner, and his arms are kind of crossed going, all right, y'all go first. Which is a great ploy, by the way, in a debate. You go first. I'll respond. And so, man, the prophets of Baal, they start dancing, they start chanting, and they're in a frenzied bit of activity, and there's no movement. And Elijah's over here going, hey, maybe he can't hear you. Why don't you all speak up a little bit? So they speak up louder, and they're dancing around and getting kind of silly, and they're all sweaty. And, hey, if, this doesn't, if our voice doesn't work and if our sweat doesn't make it happen, they start cutting themselves with stones. Maybe he'll, that will grab Baal's attention and he'll respond with thought. You hear the frenzied activity just a little bit more. If we just do more and more, we can get more out of this. We can get him to move in our direction. There's Elijah. My favorite line, it's not as clear in some English translations, but maybe he's gone to the bathroom. Give him a few minutes. Maybe he'll come out and he'll, maybe he's taking a long time on the potty. And then Elijah with the prayer of under 50 words. 
God rains down fire from heaven with a lightning bolt, which is interesting because Baal's the God of thunder and can control the lightning. But God, out of the Bible, with no real activity at all, just burns it all up and proves. And Israel has a mighty, mighty revival in the day. But at the end of the day, they're not completely broken free from all the shadows of Baal because they keep showing up. As a pastor, i got to tell you, what breaks my heart the most is when it shows up in the life of a church. It shows up sometimes with volunteers who they know the Lord loves them. And what I'm going to tell you, by the way, you're not going to hear in most churches, because most pastors know that part of what keeps people engaged sometimes is guilt. It does. It's very unfortunate. Guilt has no place in the kingdom of God. But what keeps a lot of people engaged is guilt. And so sometimes, whether the church is preaching grace or not, Um, people internally just feel guilt. And so they serve the Lord because they know it's right, but they also know that if they they got some stuff over here they want to deal with and they got some stuff over here that maybe they're keeping hidden and they're feeling bad about some stuff. And so in their mind, they do a little bit of math. And if I do a little bit of math and I got some stuff over here I don't like, it's weighing the scale down, then I'll pile on this side of the scale with some good works. They're going to do the spiritual teeter-totter thing. You've got to balance it out. One of the first things that goes sometimes in the life of a disciple of Jesus as they're working for Jesus, because they're so busy, there's another email to write, there's another thing to do. Sometimes one of the first things to go as a person's working for Jesus is their relationship with Jesus begins to suffer. Some of you are in our church because in another church, what I'm describing happened to you, and you quit praying while you served the Lord. I'm not mad at you for it. That's the shadow of Baal in your life. It's the shadow that he casts. I've never had a staff member burn out that was actively praying and reading the scriptures with discipline. Never. Never. In the history of this church, every staff member that burnt out, a recurring theme, lack of engagement with scripture, lack of engagement with prayer. And we know why it happened. It wasn't because they were bad people, evil people. Nobody was intentionally not following God. But what happens is Baal gets in the system of the way things work. And you just have to do more and more and more and more just to keep it going. So one thing God did in the Old Testament as he made it very clear that we're not going to give ourselves to a system. In our relationship, God says, we're not going to give ourselves to a system where I just require more and more and more of you. And you serve me to such an extent that your heart, listen to this, you serve me in such a way that your heart actually gets hard while you serve me. That's Baal. I want your heart soft. I want it pliable. Yeah, the work matters. But at the end of the day, the relationship is not based on the work. More work doesn't make you more pleasing to God. So what the Lord does in the Old Testament to begin to show people his heart is he says, look, the whole world around you, all they do is work all the time. Here's what you're going to do instead. You're going to work for six days. I'm going to tell you this was Earth shattering. This was cataclysmic change. It's commonplace to talk about in the church. But when it first came out, this is the first time it had ever been done. You work for six days, but my people, to prove how powerful I am, are not going to work 24-7. That's not the way it works with us. 
In fact, I'm going to set aside one day by my own example, God says, and show you that you don't have to work yourself to death. One day a week, one out of seven, you're going to rest. And in fact, if you'll honor this principle of one in seven rest, if you'll honor that, I'm actually going to bless you. It'll serve as a testimony to my power and our relationship and the quality of the relationship we want to have. If you're not so driven all the time and living in such fear of what is going to happen if you don't work, then what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to bless the things in your life that are more important. The Baal shadows, the dark shadows of Baal show up in three big ways. Number one, they show up in this kind of seeking self-sufficiency. I'll work so hard, I'll do so much that I don't really need anybody else. In fact, in our American culture, we celebrate that, the self-sufficient, pick different literary characters, the self-sufficient cowboy riding the trails alone. He doesn't need anybody. A real man doesn't really need a friend to talk to. If you're a real man, you just man up. You don't need anybody. You're self-sufficient. The problem is, is nobody is self-sufficient. No one has ever been self-sufficient. It's a facade. You were made, you were created by your creator to be in community. You are not self-sufficient. I'm not self-sufficient. And there are some things in life that only are experienced in community, in healthy community. That's why the enemy of our soul wants to destroy healthy community wherever it has the potential to show up. In your marriage, in your family, and in local churches. He wants to destroy that because he wants to convince you you don't need anybody else. But you do. In Romans chapter 8, there's the language of walking by the Spirit or walking not by the Spirit. But if you walk by the Spirit, you submit to God's law. Minimally, you're not self-sufficient. We need the Lord. And I know you know this. Listen, that's not the problem. The, the problem with the bail shadow is not that people don't know and don't know what to say. It's just that their lives don't measure up to the values they say they hold. My family is the most important thing to me, so I'm going to work double shifts all the time to take care of my family. When half of what you're providing for is wants and not needs. That's a recurring theme in our American culture. I'm not suggesting two, work, two, two jobs are bad. In fact, if you have to do that to meet needs, the most honorable thing you can do to feed your family is work two jobs. If that's what you've got to do. But if you've given in to this American way of life and, you know, somehow I bring uh, all the stuff we want and I make them all happen and I'm just driven, I'm just going to suggest that the kinds of things people talk about on their deathbed are the kinds of things we should be paying attention to. Like nobody says, really, I just wish I had another $1,000 in my account on their deathbed. They don't. I've been there. I've been beside dying people over two dozen times, as, literally as they died. Not once have I ever heard it. Number two, the dark shadow of Baal is avoiding accountability. With Baal, you're your own power. You're your own source. You can do it. You can just work harder. And by the way, you don't owe anybody an explanation anyway. Now I get it. In America, you don't. You can do whatever you want to do. But as a follower of Jesus, this is not the way it was meant to be for us. And look at what James said when he was writing about this reality just a bit. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other. Boy, that would be fun, right? Hey, instead of Will next week saying, hey, turn around and say hi to your neighbor. What if he said, hey, turn around and tell your neighbor uh, what sin you did this week? Uh, we're not going to do that, by the way. 
that would be silly and stupid. It's not the right context. But the spirit of what we're talking about here is just that it should be normal and right in a reality where you realize you're not all powerful to look at your brother and sister who you trust, to look at your spouse who you trust and confess your sins. And then, then what James says will happen is, is that, that you may be healed. Therefore, uh, uh, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Confess your sins that you might be healed. But number three, the big way that it shows up is refusing to rest, refusing to rest. Now, Jesus made it very clear that the Sabbath day, the rest day, was not made for God, but it was God's gift to man. And it's not this rule that you follow that puts a new burden on you. It's a gift you get to live in. In some ways, Jesus himself is the Sabbath rest from our struggles in working to earn our salvation. But in Exodus chapter 20, look at what it says. Remember the seventh day to keep it holy. Six days you'll labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or your maidservant nor your animals nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth so, uh, and the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. One day out of seven. One day out of seven. Let me tell you a couple things before we finish this up quickly. I love you. Seriously. I bet you, you it would take two hands for you to count the number of people who think more about you than I do. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to fill up two hands. So I'm going to say to you, I don't offer to put burdens on you. I offer this so that you can be free of the shadow of bail in your life and walk spiritually powerful and vibrant. Let me share with you a handful of ways that Sabbath is meant to show up in your life, this rest that ultimately comes from Jesus, that at the end of the day breaks the cycle of Baal, that relentless pursuing that just runs you down. It doesn't fill you up. Pursuing a relationship, got to have a relationship, got to have a relationship, got to have a relationship. Pursue, pursue, pursue. Then you get in a relationship and you realize you were such in pursuit of a relationship that you never stop to ask if that relationship is a relationship you should have. That's veil shadow. You need more. You got to have that. That will make you feel complete and whole. You need the next job thing. You need the next big house. You need the next, because that's what will make you feel complete and whole and powerful and right. You need to say those words. Those will make you feel powerful. And one of the ways that we just stop giving in to that endless cycle is we rest. So let's talk about lighting up these shadows. Number one, here's one way we do it. We do it by ceasing. Ceasing. Just stop. One of the reasons why I'm not a good counselor is half the times when people come and talk to me about their challenges, and I don't mean to sound insensitive here. There are real serious challenges. But half the time, can I be honest with you, half the time what the answer is, can I give it to you right here? It's going to save you thousands of dollars. Just stop. That's it. You're having a problem in your marriage because you're both talking mean to each other? And I got a profound solution for you. Stop it. Stop. Just stop. Shut up. Stop. People don't come back to me when I talk like that, by the way. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4. There remains, this is New Testament, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters the rest also 
rests from their work just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. God offers us this idea of rest so that we don't perish. We're free from it. Years ago, I was really struggling with my work patterns and was living a pretty dishonoring life and talking about how much I love my family and not really making them the priority in my calendar. And you know that, right? You can see what your real priorities are by your calendar and your checkbook. When we used to have it, now just, you know, you look online at your account. It's like people who really, really love Jesus don't make time for Jesus. People who really, really love Jesus don't give money to the work of Jesus. I just call bullcrud on that stuff, right? It's just, it's not true. So we get to be free, though, from the need to do that stuff to get God's pleasure. We do it out of a response. But years ago, I was struggling with this, so I read a book called Mudhouse Sabbath by a young lady named Lauren Winter, a young Christian who had come through some Jewish upbringing, and she was talking about trying to live Sabbath as a Christian. Here's some ways she suggested you do Sabbath, by not working for wages on the Sabbath, by not competing for rewards on the Sabbath, not playing in sports for her on the Sabbath because she found herself getting in that competitive mode. You relax, you play games, you read, you take leisurely strolls with your spouse, you enjoy meals together with friends and family, and you don't get up from the table too quickly. You talk to each other, and you actually use your mouth to do it. You put the phone away, and you actually talk. You don't just text together, and you can attend religious services. You can, you can pray and meditate. There's a lot you can do, but you basically stop the forward momentum that the world says what you need to do to get ahead, what you need to do to feel powerful. And instead, you replenish and you fill the bucket. Number two, you can, you can replenish, you can, you can honor the Sabbath, you can get out of the shadow of Baal by worshiping the true God. When you worship, you bow down to something greater. Look, look at the psalm, Psalm 92. Now, before the psalm begins, there are some instructions. They're in your Bible. First of all, it is a psalm, so it's, it's worship. It's a song, but then it's to be sung on the seventh day, on the day of rest. Look at the imagery here. So the song begins. It doesn't rhyme, by the way, and I don't have the tune for it, but back in the day, it would have made sense to the people of Israel as a song. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name almost high to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. So God, you're faithful, you're good. Day and night, this is what drives me. I'm not driven by my insecurities, my fears, my quest for power. You're the one that drives me. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. So again, agrarian society, the horn comes out and I get to lift my head. My head's not always down in work. I get to lift, I get to stand with power and authority, and comfort in who I am. Fine oils have been poured on my head. This is the language of anointing and power. I've been destined for a purpose, and you've equipped me for it. I don't have to constantly strive. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They'll grow like the cedars of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They'll flourish in the courts of our God. They'll still bear fruit in old age. It's going to last a long time, and they'll stay fresh and green. This does not describe 62% of Americans, including Christians, who say they're on the edge of burnout. They find time to connect with the Lord. It becomes a priority. It's written in ink in the calendar. This is the day I'm not working. This is the day I'm spending around God's stuff. Number three, by replenishing. By replenishing. 
We read this psalm at funerals, but man, it's so much more than that. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Baal would never say this over his subjects. Let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make life restful for you. I'm going to take you to safe places. He would never say that. No, he'd say, you got to kind of live in fear of me. you got to kind of pursue over and over and over again. Jesus picks up on this theme in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Let me share with you a prayer that I've been praying that became important to me when I was engaging this, how do I not ruin what's really important to me while I give myself to life's demands. Psalm 23 kind of rewritten and modified just a little bit. I'm not taking away from the the word of the Lord, but I'm going to show you how I pray regularly through Psalm 23 as a tool for you to kind of break this shadow in in your life. Look up here on the screen. Took each phrase from the Psalm 23. Here's what it says. Lord, you're my shepherd. I shall not want. So what this means for me is that I have everything I need. You're my shepherd. I shall not want. This means... I have everything I need. So I go back and forth between what God provides and because he provides it, this is what it does in my life. I'm going to tell you something, friends. When I start getting on the rat race, when I'm on the treadmill and I'm just feeling overwhelmed, the language of this chapter brings me back to the quality of the relationship God wants for me. You make me lie down in green pastures. That means I get to rest in a restless world. Everybody else is go, 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 but my God takes me to the green pastures where I get to lie down and take my rest in him. You lead me beside quiet waters. That means I have peace in troubled times because of what you provide for me. You restore my soul. All right here. That means I'm made whole in him. I tell you, this is the quality of the relationship he offers you. You can be made whole in him. You lead me in the right paths for your own name. Let me tell you what this means. I have a leader I can trust. In fact, he's staking his claim on his goodwill for me. It's for his own name he does it. I can trust him completely. You guide me and protect me when I walk through dark valleys. Tell you what that means for me. I'm never lost and I'm never alone. When I go through dark valleys, I'm never lost and I'm never alone because of God. And you prod and you push me. Your rod and your staff, they prod and they push me. This means I have peace because I know that you're, I, I know that you know where you are taking me. I don't always know the destination, but I know the one who's taking me there. And you prepare a table before me in the presence of hostile forces. Let me tell you what this means for me. I can thrive even in, even in battle. Even in battle, I can thrive. You anoint my head with oil. That is, I have your power to the work you've called me to do. You overfill my cup. I have way more than I need. I'm not just barely getting by. I have way more than I need. Your goodness and your mercy follow me. (laughs) I'm going to need them because I'm going to mess up. But when I do, your goodness and your mercy is right here. And then I'm going to go to the left when I should have gone straight. But your goodness and mercy follow me. And when you wanted me to go to the right, I went to the left. But your goodness and I'm never going to be abandoned by you. This is the God we serve. You invite me to be where you are. You prepared a place for me. 
This means that I'm at home wherever you are. It doesn't matter where I physically am. God, if you're there, I am fully at home. I bet you there's a handful of folks in this room, if they were honest, they would say that the shadow of Baal, maybe you didn't know it was that, and, but the shadow of this persistence, this rat race shows up in your family, in your life. And I just want to tell you, you can be free of that. You can be free of that. If it's shown up in your spiritual life, in your church life, you can be free of it. The best gift you give us as a volunteer around here is if you're on the edge of burnout is stop volunteering and be transparent and honest. I'm struggling. We don't need you to just keep serving yourself to oblivion. I don't want to wear people down. You're serving here. supposed to be a part of filling your cup. That's not true. Something's off. It's time for a conversation. But Baal doesn't want you to have a conversation. Stay at it. Keep going. Keep a little bit harder, a little bit harder. And every Sunday, a little bit harder. You don't have to live that way. Here's what we're going to do right now. We're going to take out our connect cards, and we're actually going to try to take a couple steps in the right direction. Next step A says, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Today I want to make him that. This is the ultimate of stepping off of the treadmill, getting out of the rat race. You don't have to save yourself. In fact, the Bible makes it pretty clear. You cannot. You cannot work good enough. You can't do spiritual math enough to save yourself. Only Jesus can offer you his salvation, and it's already been done. If you want to do that today, take the pen and check next step A. It says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. And in effect, you say, I won't trust my own work. I'll trust the work that Jesus did on the death he suffered on the cross, and in, the, in his resurrection, I'll trust in that alone to save me. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. This is where we celebrate the fact that we are all given a fresh start in him. Now, <clears throat> next step C says, hey, I'll pray through the Psalm 23 thing that you uh, shared each morning this week. Send me that prayer. If you want, I'll just email it to you. And if you struggle with someone I'm talking about today, I'm suggesting that you take that prayer and every morning you read it. You're my shepherd. You're my shepherd. This means I have all that I need. And you make me lie down in green pastures. That means I get to rest in a restless world. So God, I'm struggling with restlessness. So God, would you help me rest? And just find yourself praying through that. I'll send it to you. Next step D says, hey, I want a Sabbath better than I have. So would you send me the list of things you shared about how to Sabbath? I'll just send you some suggestions. Here's a few ways to disconnect. Here's some things you can do instead that tend to replenish the soul, soften the heart, break that shadow in your life. Next step E. It's a simple thing I'd love for everybody to do as you approach the holidays. It's about to get busy. And you get so busy making time to spend time with people that when you actually spend time with them, you can't stand them. You ever, you ever do that? I've done that. So here's what I'm suggesting. You got about a month before it really gets crazy. What if you made some time to have four unhurried meals with family and loved ones over the next month? Just four meals where you sit down and you talk. You're not in a hurry to get up before the holidays begin. I'm just wondering if the quality of your holidays would be better if you just took the gift of community that the Lord offers you. Maybe they're here in the room. Maybe they're your family. Maybe it's just your spouse. You sit down and talk, and you basically say to the spirit of this age that says, always go, always push, always drive, and you say, no, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing that anymore. I have rest with my Lord. 
I meet my needs, but I have rest with my Lord. Why don't you set your card aside for right now, and if you call this church home, I want to ask you to prepare to give an offering to support the ministry here. Hey, 4C, next week you have a big, big, uh, cool thing happening. Next week on our stage will be a guy, but we call him Pastor Jose, and he's the pastor who leads the work in Cuba that our folks went down to see. He's going to be right here on our stage next week, and his English isn't good, so Kevin, our local ministry that we uh, minister and missionary we support is going to be here kind of <clears throat> uh, translating for him, but you're going to get to see what some of your investment last year at the Christmas offering did. He wants to say thank you, <laughs> which is really cool. He wants to share with you some of how God used our offering to them last year in our Christmas offering to make a difference. And I'm so excited for you to be here. Please don't miss. It's going to be really, really awesome. We're going to share some of the cool things the Lord's done because of what you guys have done. And when these things happen, my heart just fills up. I just want to say to you very tangibly, thank you. Thank you for those of you that give and you believe in this place and you sacrifice. I know you could take that money and do anything else you want to do with it. It's yours but you see fit to give a portion of it here and it makes a real difference. And today when you leave, look into the faces of the kids that we serve, whether they're yours or others. They're wearing, many of them, their costumes and a lot of our volunteers have dressed up. Your gifts, like you're about to give right now, make a big difference in the ministry of this church. It allows us to create an environment where kids get to have fun and learn about Jesus. And it takes real money to do that and you make it happen. Thank you for that. We're going to pray. I'm going to let you put your next steps and your offering in these buckets. That's how we collect them. And then we're going to stand up together and we're going to worship our God. And for the next few minutes, this is going to be a place of Sabbath where the drive to do and earn and gather is put aside. And we make ourselves low and we look up to our great God. We worship him. Let's pray right now. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have turned off the treadmill and we don't have to be on the, in the rat race. You're not calling us to simply more and more activity. You call us to a relationship marked by love and value and significance. God, here in this place right now, we say no to the shadows of this world, specifically to the shadow of power and the quest for more. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room whose hearts are not as soft as they need to be. Because of that, sometimes they haven't been able to receive the word. And when the seed was planted, it didn't find fertile ground. And they're going to heaven. But God, the truth is, is they're just a little worn out. I pray that you would do your heart surgery here in this room right now. You would soften hearts. Speak words of healing. Put your anointing balm upon them. I pray for families that are so busy being family that they're not being family. That they'd make hard decisions about how to spend time with one another and really value the relationship. I want to lift up men and women who are declaring in the biggest way possible today that they're not going to try to save themselves. They're not going to work in that way. They're going to trust the work that Jesus has done on his cross 
and in the resurrection. They'll trust in that alone to save them. So, Father, would you take our steps that we're taking today, would you use them for your glory? Would you use them to uh, create between us and you this vibrant relationship of love and joy and wholeness and completeness? Prayed in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy Son. Amen and amen.